When a group of powerful women come together, there is an undeniable strength that radiates from their collective energy. And while their individual accomplishments may be impressive, their greatest power lies in their ability to lift each other up and inspire others to do the same. Being a part of this type of community means dedicating oneself to a higher standard of excellence and continuously striving for progress. It requires a willingness to share knowledge, provide support, and always push beyond one's limits. Through acceptance and support, these powerful women empower themselves and encourage others to reach their full potential, creating a ripple effect of success and growth. We are the powerful women. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast, Let's Get Loud. I'm very excited for today. Today, we are joined by April, Beverly, Jen, and a very special guest, Christine Stisa. Christine, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about this topic that means a lot to us, specifically around the human trafficking. And I know I'm using that word in a very mild way because there is so much more to it. But would you mind introducing yourself to our audience and really tell us what human trafficking is and the parts that go along with it? That's such a big question. Yeah, definitely. What is human trafficking? So I'm Christine. I currently work with the Avery Center for Research and Services. They're based out of Colorado and I'm based in Los Angeles, California. And I serve with the services team, which serves survivors of human trafficking and survivors of commercial sexual exploitation. And so all that to say, so what is human trafficking? I'll share with you guys. I'll email it to you so you could put it in like your show notes. We just had the most recent, which you probably can't see this. I don't know where to hold it. The trafficking in persons report. I was there in person and I contributed to it. So you guys can download it and read the most recent report. Human trafficking is any kind of just very briefly without being very extensive is force, fraud, or coercion. And anytime a person is forced into commercial sex or labor, and that can involve involuntary servitude or labor exploitation, and that can take many different forms. The Players Project identified 25 different typologies of human trafficking. So that's why I say it's a bit of a complicated question, but trafficking involves the victim the trafficker, and then usually the buyer or the third party. So that what makes it different from commercial sexual exploitation or say other forms of other crimes that are related crimes that might be also involved, but those things. So it can involve both sex and labor. People can be involved in several crimes at once. There's many lengthy descriptions I could give. For human trafficking, but that's just a very brief one. And what brought you to this area of driving you to help people in this space? What was that driving force? Yeah, so I I'm a survivor of human trafficking, of familial trafficking specifically. I just knew that kind of felt a calling to serve and do something with my life. And I also have a master's degree in intercultural studies with children at risk. And then I've been 
led down a couple different paths, including working in the healthcare space with Dignity Health and now working with the Avery Center in several other things and many different things, including working with the State Department and contributing to a couple anthologies and those different things. So part of that, like I said, was being a have holding lived experience in myself and then realizing that I wanted to turn what happened to me into something that was positive and helping other survivors and people that were currently being exploited. And when you were spending time in that healthcare field, when you had that position there, how did that help you identify victims? Were you able to help staff in that space? I was the first of that program. So they received a grant from, I believe, the Department of Justice. It might be wrong on that to have the survivor advocate because we believe that having a survivor-led program can change everything for somebody. And so I was just put in that program and I helped build that program as well as go in. So I literally went in and I did have my master's and everything, but that changed everything for both the clinical staff and for the survivors that were in the healthcare space. So I would go in and I had my hospital badge that said survivor advocate on it. And I would go in and identify myself as a survivor of trafficking and it would change things for people. They've already been seen by the physician, by an emergency room nurse. In most cases, they're in the emergency room and they sometimes spoken to a social worker but I don't go in with any of those things. I don't go in and do a screening, a psychological screening on them or anything like that. I am really trying to identify and say, I have been there. I understand. I'm not trying to say I've been in your exact shoes, but I understand some of what you are going through right now. And I want to help you if you would like it. I want to offer to assist you if you would want to receive that help and trying to assess, is this actually trafficking? Is this another crime? Is this domestic violence? Is this just a crime where there was violence that had happened, right? Because maybe they've told the nurse something because that compassion, that are you okay, that some of our emergency room nurses are just amazing and they might've been told something. But really the three elements we're looking for are force, fraud, and coercion. So a lot of times force is evident in the emergency room. Have they been run over by a car? Have they been stabbed? Have they been shot? Have they been beat up? There's physical bruises on them. Or they're telling you, I've been choked out. I've been any of those things. Or it might not be as evident. And then the coercion and being frauded. That just takes a little bit of a conversation. And some of that just takes with my own leading of saying, I've been there. Hi, this is my name. And if they would like that conversation, if they welcome me into their space with their permission, they have to get permission to the nurse or physician for me to come in because I'm not part of the clinical team for HIPAA regulations. They have to give that permission. And if they do get permission and then they welcome me to like have a conversation with them, then I might share like, you know, I was trafficked from a young age by a family member, then they'll be different, it lists different things. And then some people want to have a conversation. And there have been people that don't want to talk to the physician 
they refuse to speak to the physician. And then I have to be the intermarry between the patient and the physician or the patient and the nurse or the only let the nurse come in. Then when I'm in the room and I'm like, I don't know how to do these things, but then we become a team. So that was a magic in the hospital is we became a team. So the nurses, the social worker, the physician, myself, we became a team. So then I would go out and they could document in their chart what had happened, what their wishes were, if they wanted to find a safe home or not, what their next steps were, and then what medically needed to happen. Were they getting admitted? Were they getting discharged? What was going on? And you could see like their walls come down when they're speaking to somebody who'd been there because a lot of times they're assuming certain clinical staff are judging them and the staff are like, I was not judging them, but they're just making the assumption if they look a certain way, or maybe they had four patients and they were trying to do too many things at once. Just having another person there who could advocate for them. Christine, I really appreciate you joining us today and really talking about this because first of all, we appreciate you sharing your passion and your background in this and First of all, we need more people in the universe out there really sharing their stories and helping others and giving back even in those delicate situations. So I was wondering if you could just maybe share a little bit about like where in the process do you jump in? If I was at a hospital, could I find someone like you when I first get there before I check in? Is it after I check in and there's a situation? How can hospitals and or people finding a safe spaces like yourself in those circumstances? So it really depends on the hospital system and how trained the staff are on one, people who've experienced violence and two, human specifically human trafficking. If these patients are treated like someone that's experienced child abuse or specifically somebody who is a domestic violence patient, then they might look like domestic violence. But I've had cases where it looked like domestic violence and they'd say, my boyfriend is just horrible. And just a simple, what does that mean to you? That opened a whole conversation where when they said what that means and they expounded on that, the social worker and myself, it actually was human trafficking. Most wow. patients don't have people who are being trafficked, currently victimized, do not have the language. Will Almost no one will come in and say, I'm being trafficked. So that's almost like an invisible crime in some yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I would say to your question, I would say usually it's not in triage unless it's like very obvious or cases where it's very obvious but triage happens so fast. The staff have less than two minutes and they're looking for major healthcare things. They're looking for heart attacks. They're looking for strokes. Life-threatening conditions. Like, or and, yeah. <laughs> and the majority of the folks that are being trafficked, they're not going to fit in that demographic. They might, but the majority of them will probably not fit in that demographic. So I would say it's later in the process. It's like your nurse, or the physician has seen them. Maybe they'll say, I don't have anywhere to go. I'm homeless, but they don't look, something feels off. So we often say the clinical presentation doesn't match up with what they're verbally telling you, similar to like domestic violence or abuse or something like that. And if they say they're homeless, but they look like 
super well put together or they just look too clean. They're not your typical yeah. homeless person. Yeah, I can see why that, people would just dismiss it. If you're living with your trafficker, you're living in a hotel room to work dates, like you wouldn't say that's where I live. You don't want to say that you're shamed or you're embarrassed or who wants to say they're living with their pimp. Like you're not going to say that. They're maybe worried for their safety too, right? Yeah. Yeah. If they have in the hospital I worked, we only let one person back at a time unless it was like an elderly patient or a child because we just didn't have the space. And also it was like an urban downtown hospital. And I think that's a good policy for all hospitals, honestly, because then you like are maintaining the security. You don't have to worry about removing somebody once they get back. Like they're already right. back and now you have to worry about removing this patient or the patient's a partner or whatever. I mean, what would that look like though with a child? If a child's being trafficked and their parent is back there, what signs do you look for then? Yeah, so you can think similar to child abuse. You would look Mm. for withdrawn, maybe withdrawn. Mm -hmm. The child's looking down. They are looking shy or they won't answer. Their parent is answering all the questions. It would be a case of like a stomach ache, throat infections, vaginal infections, male or female. There might be bruises on their legs or arms, but on the inside, same thing with like abuse, but there might be finger marks on their the inside of their legs or vaginal areas or that kind of thing. But the parent refuses to leave when they're being examined. And if there's too many indicators, even when you're touching the child, they're having signs of post-traumatic stress or they're flinching or screaming, or even when you're examining them and it's painful, they don't react at all. Those kind of things, that would be indicators of something more is going on here. And I would say to trust your gut. If something feels off, it probably is. In the case of its child abuse, you would ask the parent to like, you know, and I would just to say, hey, there's a com, this is something I do with all my patients. And when they get to this kind of age where it's puberty or whatever, I'll, I just ask to speak with them alone because I often don't get honest answers. If I am not able to speak to them alone, I promise it'll be about two minutes. And you'll be able to come back in the room, but I just need to, that's just the protocol in blame it on the hospital. It's a protocol of the hospital. This is just what we do. I can have a nurse stand in here so that we're not, it's not one-to-one. There's two people in here, but I just need to speak to them privately. And if they cause too much of a problem, you wouldn't do it. And if you do think the child's being abused, you have significant factors to think that, then you could call DCFS or Department of Children and Families, or whatever, every state, it's called something different. I'm a big fan of saying you need to take the kid, you need to take the patient for an x-ray that's fake. Like, it's not a real x-ray, bringing that to x-ray room. There's rays in here. We can't, there's x-rays in here. I can't bring a person in that's not being x-rayed. And that's your place to like SM. If you're being hurt or something bad is happening to you, tell me right now, because I can get you help. Like, that kind of thing in that few seconds. And there's a lot of people who would speak up in that moment. That's your window of opportunity to get help. So those kind of things are like, I need to take this person and they don't know where the x-ray room is. So you can take them there. You say you're going to take them for the x-ray, but you really take them across the hospital to a unit that's locked. 
And if you really think they're in danger, like they don't really know where it is. You take them to the NICU or the PICU or wherever, and they don't really know. And I know that would cause some red flags. But if you think their child is really in danger and the child's telling you like they need help, you're not kidnapping the child. They're just in another area of the hospital and you're just waiting for DCFS to arrive at that point. But you would have to see significant indicators because familial trafficking often happens when they're young, four, five, six years old, something like that. And you would see a child shut down. You would see those bruising. You would see the throat infections. You would see infections in the mouth. You would see bruising. You would see a kid completely shut down and not being able to communicate because their parent wouldn't let them. And that is a tricky area. 40% of survivors report being familial traffic. Traf- mean, mean, Pretty high being, statistic, yeah. Yeah, being trafficked by a family member, or parent, foster parent, something like that. And almost, I'm like one person who's always talking about it, but very few people <laughs> do talk about it. It's all very helpful information. What about adults? Yeah. What so would you they, say, son, like when somebody's maybe, I, I would say maybe it's trickier so when the it's other an adult populations situation. I would say to look out for that go underrepresented because almost everyone is looking for that female with a boyfriend. That's what we've been trained to look out for. But I would also say to look out for the LGBTQ population. And I would say to look for males because they're also being trafficked at almost the same rates, almost wow. half. And they're almost never being identified. And so we're still looking for force, fraud, and coercion. It's still the same. So with LGBTQ and male, they could be trading something of value that might be a place to sleep at night. That in turn for that place to sleep at night, they might have to exchange sexual services. Or they might be told if they don't do this, they're going to be beaten or they're going to tell everyone they know that this has happened. Or I've even seen people in the hospital that we have cameras everywhere, but those cameras have been used against them. So they've been forced to do things online or through certain websites or even our phones now are a camera. If you don't perform online, then I'll kick you out on the street right now. So something so about more fear-based. Yeah, more well, fear-based. There's always, there's yeah. always a fe- element of fear and it force can be used. So like a question I often asked, was like, what would happen if you didn't do this? If you didn't comply, if you said no, you said you weren't feeling well. And then you'll get like an honest answer from people. You get that honest answer of what would happen. So if nothing would happen, then it probably isn't forced probably. Like that probably isn't a trafficking scenario because everyone that I know that's been trafficked, they couldn't take a day off when they wanted to. They couldn't take a rest. Like they couldn't, just take a break. They had to work or like response I've gotten from people have been like, I'd get the shit beat out of me. And sorry, this just went not ready to date. <laughs> but well, I've had paramedics tell charge nurses to call me when they started catching on because when we've had people like thrown out of our trauma zones and run over by a car when they basically didn't comply and they just decided to run them over. And they were just, or dumped on the emergency room door naked, like nearly dead. 
there are cases where it's not unclear, like what happened to you? And they'll be screaming, my kid did this to me. That's not unclear. Like that's extremely clear. But there are cases where it's unclear, where it maybe they were working or they were said in order to stay in this country, I had to do X, Y, and Z. And I have a contract. You have to let me go. And there are times people are very sick. I had a physician once pull me over in what was like our urgent side, like our quicker side. And she said, you have to see this. And I said, I don't know what I'm looking for. And then, you know, the person was very sick. The patient didn't know he was sick, but because they hadn't been able to access care, probably when they were feeling ill, we're told to go in when we're not We have many days when we have some sort of symptoms and this person wasn't able to. The doctor was just showing me the white blood cell count. This is what the normal number is. This is what this patient's number is. And I was like, oh, that's... So they they themselves get disoriented on reality because they've just been victimized for so long. Sounds like they... don't even know that you, you any, learn, any longer. They just become just so disconnected and detached. Just you, to learn, you learn to put up with being treated horribly and yeah. just going through the day and surviving. And also trauma has a huge impact on our health and will mm. have lasting impacts on our health. That's why we need things like the medical safe haven and trauma-informed physicians that will understand like You're 30 years old, but your body is acting like it's 50. Your thyroid is shutting down. You suddenly develop this huge autoimmune disease because you were trafficked for 20 years. You're trafficked for 15 years. You're trafficked for even that question of when you go in, they ask you how many sexual partners you have. I don't want to answer that question. Like, no, thank you. What's available to them? You identify them, you get them away from the person or family But what support is out there for them after to heal? So it really depends on the area of the country. So that's why I try to connect them with the safe home. It's not just a shelter bed. I would never try to put somebody in a homeless shelter. That would get somebody probably re-traffic, like re-exploited. Emergency program that is at least a 30-day program. And that's minimal. That's like basically stopping you from your head spinning. And then trying to connect that person with a long-term program, at least a two-year program. You want a program that's going to connect them with therapy services, health services, educational services. Then from that program, we'll help them get housing. Since this program is going to be spread out throughout the country, it's really hard to say, but Polaris is a national helpline and they can help. On their website, they have a vetting of programs throughout the country and another one a safe house project and they have vetted safe houses throughout the country and there are a couple others that do that work they have done the work of kind of finding out if a safe house is good or not have they trauma-informed care do their staff get background check so in certain areas there are more programs and if you're looking at like the rural Midwest is going to have almost nothing. And then certain areas like larger cities throughout the United States, you're looking at a large city, it probably has more resources available in almost every large city. But your smaller cities and definitely your rural areas are not going to have very much. It depends on the individual. They may want to leave the area they're in because one, it may be triggering and two, they may be afraid that their trafficker will find them. 
in the area they're in. So they may say, I want to leave this area. I can't be here and it's unsafe for me to be here. So that's when we use a national network of programs to say, okay, let's start your life over. Like, where can we go and where can we find you a safe home? That's why you might need to do the emergency shelter first, that kind of 30-day program, and then find them a place to go that's a bit safer that we might have to put them on a plane or put them in a bus or train or the Amtrak or something like that to get them in a better program. If you see someone, say you just are out in the street somewhere or you're in the community and signs that someone may be with a trafficker or whatever and you want to help is maybe giving them, they may not be in a, like a violence situation or a, in need of medical care a situation. What would you recommend someone actually do to maybe help someone that looks like they may need some help and it could be a child, it could be an adult, but what are some good resources or ways that if people see something that they can say something and help out? Yeah. So one, I would say to never approach a person that they believe is with a trafficker because trafficking is a crime and traffickers can be extremely violent. So I would say like, you just don't know what a trafficker is capable of, but you can always call the National Human Trafficking Hotline You can also call, if you believe that person is in imminent danger, I would always say to call 911 and say you're reporting an incidence of trafficking or whatever you see happening because you don't want to get involved in that situation, especially if you're not law enforcement, you're not trained in this. Otherwise, there are cards from the blue campaign that have the National Human Trafficking Hotline that can even go in someone's shoe or bag or hand real quick real quickly. I actually have some free materials here so I can get them to you guys from the blue campaign that just have those, their indicator cards or quick, we call them shoe cards that you could like, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't legitimately put them in your shoe, but you put them in your wallet or whatever that you could. And if you had one with you, you can easily hand it to somebody or you can easily get a card made that says free help available at this number. You could easily give that to somebody and they could call those hotline numbers. Jen, do you have any questions? Oh, this is all really great information. I love hearing about all this. I really appreciate you being here and talking to us. Yeah, of course. I do have another question. I watch these, I've been looking at the statistics and a lot of these people are identified for trafficking. They're identified for causing harm, but they don't get prosecuted. Oh, you mean the traffickers? Yeah. Is that because their victims are too scared to report and place that report? What is behind that or what could be behind that? It's a lot of reasons. For one, there has to be enough evidence for them to prosecute. So it's like the whole judicial process, right? So there might be a crime that occurred. And so unless, let me back up, unless the crime crossed state lines and the person trafficked, the perpetrator, the trafficker trafficked the same individual across state lines, it can't be a, it's, you know, or they didn't, or they trafficked a huge amount of people, it won't be a federal crime. And then the way things are prosecuted differ by state. So if you're trafficked in, there's a trafficker in California, that may be prosecuted differently than if you're trafficked in Ohio. 
or wherever, West Virginia or wherever, like it just, the laws differ, even though it's the same crime. So I'll start there. Then things such as with sex trafficking for per se, if someone's a minor, that's a certain penalty. And in some crimes, there'll be a certain amount and they have to have evidence and be able to prove that person actually traffic that person. However, the evidence is proved. If the person is an adult, what happens sometimes with sex trafficking is that the trafficker will put things in the victim's name while they're being trafficked. So it will look like there's other crimes that occur that was actually done against the person, but the person has the survivor, the victim, had that those things put in their name so it looks like they perpetrated those crimes, but they were actually done to them. And so those are hard to prosecute because there's no evidence against that trafficker or little evidence. If there were crimes of theft, if there were crimes of money laundering, which is often happens, whatever the crimes are, the main crime is pimping and pandering. They have to prove that. And some of the laws that are being changed across the country are making it more difficult to prove pimping and pandering. For labor trafficking, they have to look for other crimes to prove those crimes and the crimes that need to be for that trafficking crime to occur. And they have to find the physical evidence. They have to prove that person was being held or that they weren't getting their wages. There was wage theft going on. And so, again, they have to have that evidence there and there has to be enough evidence to hold. And a lot of times there isn't enough to put the appropriate penalty for the trafficker to be held for an appropriate amount of time. So they, in essence, serve little to no time. And definitely the buyer in cases of sex trafficking, like basically get a slap on the wrist. So there's little to no risk for sex buying. And until that changes, till the demand changes, it just won't stop ever. And so we really, as a system, as a country, we have to change and put penalties on demand, penalties on sex buying, penalties on the trafficker, and Mm -hmm. stop putting the ownership on this crime on the victim. Mm Because until that changes, nothing will change. Are there groups looking to do that currently? Are there things where we could participate as well and help drive that? Yeah, there is a group called End Demand. There's also a group called Epic, and they all work on the demand side. There are several other groups. I can get them to you, and you guys can put them in your show notes or whatever. And a lot of survivors really are pushing forward also, Nicosi really pushes and demand and they're a national organization and a lot of survivor led organizations, not all, but a number of them and survivors themselves will push forward kind of end demand because we all know there was always a buyer. People right. would be trafficked in different ways. Their spoiler might have been look differently. I said it today to somebody like, Trafficking survivors don't all look, they're not a monolith. They don't look the same. And the stories are not all the same. They're all very different. But 
the one thing that is true specifically of sex trafficking and of labor trafficking too, but it looks differently. There's always a trafficker in human trafficking. And the difference with sex trafficking is there's always a buyer involved. Their demand was always there. And so a lot of survivors are pushing that forward and really want to see efforts put on that because for there to be little to no punishment, that has to change. We can have all the things we want to have. We can have all the nonprofits, all the indicator, it's all the efforts and it won't make a difference. I wouldn't come forward. If I thought they were going to be released and back on the street, I wouldn't come forward. It'd be too much risk. You'd like, oftentimes it takes almost changing your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a tough feat. Is there like any statistics behind that? Is there a high percentage of people that get out of that situation? Meaning I'm not sure I understand your question. Like a five-hundred ratio to being re-trafficked again. Re-victimized. Re-victimized. That, that don't, there's... So there, there are or some, even just are able to get out of their situation. I, as there would be probably two statistics, right? There's how, how many of people who are trafficked actually are able to get out of that situation, and then what is the likelihood? Well, I would say of revictimization. So, so it has to do with a lot of things. It has to do with the effects of trauma. It has to do yeah. with housing. It has to do with money. It has to do with a lot of things. What people often say is five to seven times people often relapse. And it's just like anything else. It's like drugs and alcohol. It's like addiction. Or even domestic abuse, isn't it? Right. Like there's some statistics around that. I can't even say that word. Yeah. But there's statistics around it. And I think it's nor- like normal, quote unquote, for spouses to go back to their abusers a certain number of times before they can actually get out of that situation. It also depends too on like, if you have supportive people in your life, if mm-hmm. the only person you ever felt like that cared about you is the person who trafficked you and when you're stable, but it's almost like you're on one of the, like a balancing ball and then something happens and you tilt off and the only person that you have to call when something goes wrong, like your car, you get in a car accident, whatever, is that person who trafficked you and you don't have other supportive people. So the best yeah. thing we can do for people is provide safe housing, provide some source of income, and hopefully it's a living wage, and provide people in their community who are supportive and they can turn to. And for a lot of people, we call that a family of choice because it may not be, and it often is not, their biological family. Yeah. It would be their biological family, but it may not be their biological family. So, yeah. so choose your top five. <laughs> Surround yourself with your top five. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Anything else for Christine, you guys? I feel like we could talk about this all day. I don't have any more questions, but it's definitely a hot topic. I appreciate all that you do, truly, and your wealth of knowledge and how you're striving to educate everyone around you. Now that we know more, we spread the news. And I think that to know those numbers, especially the tip lines and that sort of thing, and to step in, everyone can call a tip line and step in and do something. The only way we're going to affect change. Yeah. And for those who are listening, Polaris Project has a great 
basic 101 training. If you don't know anything about human trafficking, if you have some basic knowledge, it's probably maybe not what you want to do. But if you need a basic training, and then if you get on some of these listservs, there's always somebody doing a webinar. I get a lot of them in my inbox every day. But if you are looking for like, where do I even start? I would suggest Polaris Project because they do have a free, it's completely free, one Human Trafficking 101. And then you'll be connected to the National Human Trafficking Hotline in their listserv and the information they put out. Great. Do you we have really any- do appreciate you coming and talking today. Yeah, of course. This. I think it's amazing what you've done and what you've overcome and what you're willing to really get out there and help create some change. Yeah. Yeah. There's a quote, which I won't remember who said it. We kind of like the bloom where you're planted. We have to make our communities a better place. And whether that's our local community or our further reach, we all have to do that. You don't have to run an organization to do that. You can start with like where you are talking a lot of even trafficking prevention. When we ask survivors, like what would have helped you or what does help you? And oftentimes it said having one caring adult in their life would have mm. prevented me from being exploited. With familial trafficking, that's not true. But but with most cases, that is true. And even with foreign nationals coming with labor trafficking, a lot of times if they would have had somebody who would have educated them on their realities and or if they would have had somebody to turn to when they were in the States, that would have prevented the exploitation in the first place. Um, yeah. So I just like to say that because I know I it feels it's really overwhelming wise. Yeah. when you hear this information. It can be so overwhelming, but the reality is like you, good person listening as a neighbor. It just takes one person. It just takes one person. Just be a friend to the kids in your neighborhood. Be a friend right. to those people at the folks at your church or the community right. group you belong to or the mm-hmm. sewing club you go to or whatever. Wherever you are, just be the reason someone smiles today. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Volunteer at an organization like that doesn't have to be trafficking. Just do something to help out your neighborhood, get to know people in your neighborhood or your community, wherever you are, even if it's a big city. Because the one thing people say more than anything is that they're lonely. So get to know some folks and help out. So like that would be the best thing you could do and to prevent people being trafficked. Ben, were you going to say something? Yeah. Uh, I was just going to ask like what your plans for the future were. You have like plans to take this further as far as the work that you've been doing. Yeah. So my dream <laughs> is, which I don't really know how it's going to happen really, but um, there is some things in the works, but it will be like not something that happens super fast is to start an organization for familial trafficking survivors to be like a two-prong to do training and develop materials because there's almost nothing out there and to provide services, mentoring services and even local services like events and community events. There's no programs anywhere that I'm aware of that agencies that are for specifically for familial trafficking. So that, that is something that I hope to do. And like I have in the works a little bit. Now. I think that's amazing. Let us know how we can support you. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah. And I can't say enough. Do it online. 
if there's not one anywhere, be the one. And yeah, seriously, you have a great vision and we're here to support. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for participating with us, for being part of this and for really getting the word out there. We truly appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you for having me.